Star Wars type, the force um, that you can tap into at any time, that you can access at any time. And there's no questions asked. There's no accountability. There's no certainty. There's no authority. It's just something you feel. God is just this movement. Well, how do we understand? How do we approach God? And if, if neither of these are, are correct, how do, we, how do we approach a God who created everything, a God who has all authority and sovereignty, has all power? How do we approach him as human beings? And I think Mark tells us this morning in our text that it may be entirely different than what we expected. And you may have experienced this too when you came to faith in Christ, that it was different than what you expected. It was different from what you heard around you from other, other people that believed in God. I think he shows us this morning a couple different approaches to Christ. And to recap, to remind you where we've been, we've been studying through Mark's gospel. We've been looking at uh, Mark's claim that Jesus is the Son of God. He's doing all of this. He's demonstrating Jesus' authority. He's demonstrating Jesus' teaching, all these miracles and signs and wonders to show us that Jesus was God's Messiah, that he was sent to earth. He is God in flesh, and he was sent to take the sins of his people. And so we've seen healings, we've seen Jesus controlling nature by speaking, we've seen him exercise demons, we've seen him raise the dead to life, and in all of this, he's attracted quite a following. Some are following him in obedience, some are surrendering to him with their lives and following him, yet others are wanting to kill him. And last week, we see another, or one of these groups, or a couple of these groups kind of come together, and they want to destroy Jesus, and so they're looking for a reason to accuse him, to trip him up. And he, corner, he turns it on them and shows them their legalism. He shows them their tradition and how they're following the, the laws of man, the traditions of the elders, and not God. And so after that, on the hills of that, he's demonstrated too in the, in the closing of that text last week that there are no longer clean and unclean foods. There's no longer this Jew and Gentile distinction. Yet, yes, Jesus was sent to the Jews. He was a Jew himself, but he is the Savior of the Jew and Gentile. He's done away with this Jew-Gentile divide. And on the hills of that claim, we meet him in a Gentile area, in a Gentile region, with two Gentile individuals. And, uh, and so this morning, uh, in our text, in our sermon, in our time together, sort of uh, two Gentile biographies, if you will. Two stories of two individuals that uh, meet Christ, approach Christ, or are approached by Christ, and how their lives are forever changed. And so we're asking God to show us in their stories uh, what we learn about Christ and ourselves. And so first, I guess our first point, if you will, a Gentile woman receives divine breadcrumbs. So look at verse 24 through 30. You see her story there. It's probably subheadings. There are probably subheadings in your Bible to show you that, that story, that pericope. And so uh, look at verses 24 through 26 where we'll see her background. We see a little bit about who she, uh, who she was. It says this in verse 24. And from there he arose and went into the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came to him and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. The story starts by showing us that Jesus went into this region of Tyre and he wanted to do it without anyone taking note. It wasn't that Jesus was wanting to do this uh, on the down low or keep it quiet because he was doing something shady. He was doing something he shouldn't have been, so he was wanting to keep this quiet and wanted to slip under the radar. No, Jesus had been doing ministry nonstop, primarily Jewish regions. 
and he was exhausted. We've seen him already uh, try to get away and find rest and relaxation with his disciples. And every time he does that, he, he can't. They, they, the crowds find him. The masses find him. And he's again doing ministry. He's again working miracles and having mercy on folks and teaching folks. And so he's wanting to get away. He's wanting some, some rest again. And, uh, and he goes to this Gentile region thinking that maybe there's some rest and relaxation away from this Jewish area he's been doing ministry. And yet again, it doesn't work. A uh, woman hears of Jesus' arrival. She makes her way boldly to him. And again, you could look at this in two ways. One, Jesus didn't get far enough away from Jewish territory, right? So we find where he ends up, this area known as Tyre, is less than 20 miles from uh, Jewish territory. So he only travels 20 miles into Gentile land. So you could say, well, he just didn't get far enough away. Or another way of looking at it, and I think the right way, this is precisely exactly where he wanted to be. This is where he needed to be, and he went there for a purpose and I believe that is the case. And this Syrophoenician woman comes up, and she lives close enough to Jewish territory, right? Only 20, 20 miles in. She lives close enough to Jewish territory that she knows their customs. She knows what the Jewish people believe. She knows their practices. She knows that she has no religious, moral, or cultural credentials that would have made it necessary for her to approach a Jewish rabbi. She would have known this. I mean, you think about the, even the way that the text describes her to us, the way that the text uh, gives us details about her life. She's a, a Phoenician woman. She's a Gentile. She's a Gentile. And so in that, Matthew 15, in, in Matthew's version of this story, he tells us that she's a Canaanite. So not only is she a Gentile, but she's a Canaanite Gentile. And if you remember who they are, again, going back to our study of Deuteronomy, the Canaanites were those ancient, that ancient uh, race and culture of people that Israel attempted to annihilate and destroy when they came into the promised land. So she's an ancient enemy of the Jewish people, being a Canaanite. More than that, she's a pagan. I mean, the Bible tells us that she was a Greek speaker, Syrophoenician. She had, she had been Hellenized by the, the pagan Greek culture. She left whatever pagan religions she practiced as a, as a Canaanite whatever her ancestors would have, would have practiced, and she adopted uh, the pagan religion of the Greeks, which we know the Jews were opposed to. The, 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 this idea of Hellenization, that the, the Greeks were making culture everywhere like them and adopting their religious practices. And so this woman was not only an ancient enemy of Israel, she was now adopting the practices that they hated in this day. Further, she's a woman. Rabbis did not have conversations with women in this way. At this time and in this culture, there, there was even a sect of rabbis known as the, uh, the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. You may have heard of these guys. Uh, they, they were called the blue, bruised and bleeding Pharisees because every time they saw a woman, they would cover their eyes to prove that they were not going to lust or to have uh, sexual thoughts in their mind toward women. Uh, they, would, they would cover their eyes. And so you can imagine if you're out in the yard playing soccer with your son and you're running full speed after a ball and a woman walks up through, well, through your gate and you cover your eyes, you can't see where you're going and smack, you run right into a tree. And so they become known as the bleeding and bruised Pharisees. And this was a, it was a, it was a statement of pride for them. That they took their sexual purity so seriously that they would cover their eyes, even at the risk of running into a, a tree or a wall or a fence, so as to make it that they would not lust for someone. And they, they, they valued this. They, they, they prized their uh, heightened sexual ethics. And so uh, th this lady's a woman, and she's approaching a, a Jewish rabbi. And on top of that, if all of those things were not enough, 
And the text tells us she has a, a daughter who's possessed by an unclean spirit. So she, according to the Jews, would have been unclean by association. She has someone, a daughter, living in her home who has an unclean spirit. So she's unclean. All of these are reasons alone that this woman should not have approached a Jewish rabbi. Yet, she does. She didn't care. She was desperate. And so she approached Jesus. And the rest of this story is their interaction. So verse 26b, if you continue, you see her pleading request. Text says she begged him. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So she enters the house where Jesus is at, not wanting really anyone to know. He's wanting some rest, seemingly without invitation. And she falls down at her feet and she begins to beg. And the the verb in the Greek um, is a continuous verb. It means that she kept on pleading and begging and crying out before him that he'll do something for her daughter. Nothing or no one could stop her. She was pleading for her daughter's life. Matthew 15, it tells us in his version of the story that the disciples actually encouraged Jesus, send her away. Tell her to get out of here. Tim Keller, commenting on this passage of Scripture, says this, you know know why there's a sudden burst of boldness, a sudden sudden burst of, of, of boldness before this Jewish rabbi, right? And he describes that there's this spectrum. And you can picture it. On this spectrum, there are cowards. And then they're in the middle like normal people like us. And then on this other side, there are heroes, people that would do daring things in the face of of danger because they're bold, they're courageous. So you have cowards, regular people, and heroes. And and Keller says that uh, parents are not even on the spectrum. They're, they're They're not anywhere on the spectrum because if a child is in danger, a parent simply does whatever it takes to save them. And you know this if you're a parent. Like, like coward, regular people, heroes, and then parents are like way over here because in that moment, it doesn't matter what it's going to require. You would travel the face of the earth if it would keep your child uh, from pain, from danger, from agony. And this is where this woman is. She's on the floor begging and pleading at the feet of the Savior because she knows that's the only hope for her daughter. Look at verse 27. You see Jesus' response to her begging. It says, and he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. That's that's an incredible statement from Jesus, right? You you, you read that and you're like, whoa, Jesus, hang on, whoa, whoa, whoa. What is Jesus even saying here? I mean, on the surface, it seems that Jesus has just insulted this woman, that he's he's called her a terrible name, a, a derogatory name, and he's made fun of her situation in the midst of this agony and pain that she's dealing with, her daughter with an unclean spirit. She goes to the one place she believes she has hope, and that person calls her a dog. Like, What, what is Jesus doing here? And it's hard for us to see this because we're a dog-loving society. I mean, you may not in, 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 in specifically love dogs, but our culture, our, we're okay with dogs. We have pets. They sleep in our homes. Even if they like to shed and, and have bad habits, like, uh, like dogs typically do sometimes, we still uh, have pets. We understand that, but not the case in Jesus' society. They wouldn't have had dogs in their home. Dogs were, were, were wild and, and dirty and filthy and, and untouchable savages that scourged the streets looking for food like vultures would in our culture, in our world today. They were filthy. They were looked down upon. And so to call someone a dog was a terrible insult. And at that time, it was very common that Jews would call Gentiles dogs because uh, they considered them ritually unclean. This whole issue we talked about last week with these, these Pharisees in their, their unclean hands. 
They considered Gentiles unclean dogs, and so they called them that. So then the question is, is Jesus just doing what the, Jesus, what the Jewish people were doing? Is he just showing his culture? Is he just demonstrating that he's a part of these Jewish people and he's using the same um, prejudice, derogatory language that his people would? No, absolutely not. You see, this is a, a test to this woman. It's a, it's, a, it's a challenge to her. He's testing her faith. He's, he's giving her a parable. We've seen Jesus teach in parables throughout uh, the book of Mark. We've seen it time and time again that when Jesus teaches, it's often in parables. A metaphor, a riddle, if you will, where uh, an earthly lesson or an object lesson is, is given, but it, there's actually a spiritual meaning behind it. There's a spiritual truth that is being conveyed through an object lesson or a, or a lesson using things around them. And this is exactly what he's doing. And so the key to understanding this parable, this, this teaching, that he's, this challenge that he's giving this woman, is to understand the word that's used here for dog in the Greek. It's not dog as in the dog that would scourge and, and go through the streets looking for scraps and foods, the dog that was filthy and, and had diseases and was mangy. That's not the, the, the idea of dog that's used here. It's actually uh, the word for puppy or cute little household pet. And so remember what Jesus is talking, talking about here and who he's talking to. He's talking to a mother. He's talking to someone who keeps a home. And so she would have known absolutely what he was talking about here. In that culture, as well as in ours, it makes sense. Families eat first. The children are a priority. They eat first at the table. And afterwards, if there's any left over, the, the pets can have it. They can eat too. And so it would be wrong to violate that order. It would be unthinkable to say that they would get, the, the pets would get priority over the children. The puppies shouldn't eat from uh, the table before the children. And so Jesus' words to her are, are as much a challenge to her more than it is an insult. He's saying to the woman, please understand, there's an order here. There's a, there's a process here. I was sent to the Jews. I was sent to Israel first. I am a Jew myself. And then the Gentiles, other nations, will be brought into this promise. This, is, this was the plan from the beginning. Paul says this. It's the power of God, the Jew first and then the Gentile, Romans 1. This is not, this is not uncommon. They would, have, they would have understood this. And that's what he's saying. This is, there's a process here. I'm a Jew. I was sent to the Jews. But the Gentiles are a part of it. They'll be brought in. But then watch her come back in verse 28. Look what she says in response to that. But she answered him. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So, so watch what's happening here. In other words, yes, Lord, I understand your, your parable, your metaphor here, but even the puppies that are, that are in the home, that are cute little cuddly animals that the, that the family does take in, even they get to eat from the table too, and that's what I'm in need of, and I need it now and not later. I understand that there's going to be a time for them, but I, I need that now. I need those crumbs now. Jesus just told her a parable. And parables are never just what they may seem at face value. And in this parable, there's a challenge and there's an invitation. You may not have even seen it, but she gets it. She sees it. She understands it. And you see this in her comeback. You see this in her response. Okay, I understand. I'm not a part of the nation of Israel. I don't worship the God that the Israelites worship. That's not how I was brought up. That's not how I was raised. I understand that. Therefore, I understand I don't have a place at this table. I don't have rights at this table. I accept that. And I think this in itself is startling for us, right? 
That should startle us because we don't think like that. She, she doesn't take offense. She doesn't insist and demand upon her rights. She says, okay, I may not have a place at this table, but I know that there's more than enough at this table for everyone, and I need the hope of the Messiah right now. She's wrestling with Jesus. She's wrestling with the Word of God, literally the Word of God, and she will not take no for an answer. And I think in the U.S., the United States, we don't get this because we've heard from the time that we were children in elementary school that we stand up for our rights, right? That we, 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 we contend for things that are our God-given rights, that we stand up for them, uh, for dignity and for goodness because this is what I'm owed, right? We've, we've heard that. I was born in the greatest nation of the world, and I'm, I'm in, by uh, my rights given certain things. And this woman was not doing that at all. Tim Keller says that this is rightless assertiveness. Rightless assertiveness. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve based on my goodness. No, she's saying the exact opposite. Give me what I don't deserve based on your goodness. Do you see the difference there? Do you see the difference? They have eternal significance. One is damnable. The other is redemption. Lord, don't give me what I deserve based on my goodness, but give me what I don't deserve because I know you are good. That's what she's saying. And hear, hear me closely, friends. If you want to stand before God and demand your rights, then you better hang on. Because the only thing we are owed, the only thing that we have ever earned is hell and punishment for our rebellion. People say, well, that's unfair, right? That's unfair for a good God to send people to internal, eternal punishment in hell. That's unfair. No, friends, that is fair. What is unfair is that Jesus would die so that any of us could have access to God and heaven. That's unfair. We're all rule breakers. We've all deserved the punishment of God. And if we got what we deserved, if we demanded and insisted upon our rights, then what we would get would be immediate and eternal punishment in hell. Even the air we breathe, even God's air that we breathe without asking permission, is more than we deserve. And look what he, look what he says to her. Continue verse 29 through 30. She gets that. She gets that. And then he says to her in verse 29, he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter, and she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Jesus says for this statement, uh, better translated, there's, it's actually a commonly used rabbi phrase here, uh, such an answer. He looks at her and says, gosh, such an, such an answer you have given. She sees the challenge. She sees the invitation that Jesus is giving to her in this parable, and her plea is answered, and her daughter is healed. James, Edward in, in, Ed, James Edwards, in his commentary, says this. This is a, a lengthier quote, but, but hang with me, because I think what he's picking up on uh, is, is, is absolutely key for our understanding of Mark right here. And he says that she appears to understand the purpose of Israel's Messiah better than Israel does. Her persistence is testimony to her trust in the sufficiency and surplus of Jesus. His provision for the disciples and for Israel will be abundant enough to provide for one such as her. Jesus desperately seeks to teach his chosen disciples, yet they are dull and uncomprehending. Jesus is reluctant to even speak to a walk-up pagan woman, and yet after one sentence, she understands his mission and receives him. How is this possible? 
The answer is that the woman is the first person in Mark to hear and understand a parable from Jesus. She answers Jesus from within the parable using the same metaphor and indicates that she is indeed the first person in the gospel to hear the word of God. Don't miss the significance of this moment. Don't miss what's going on in the gospel of Mark. We've seen Jesus doing ministry to the Jew. And here in the gospel of Mark, we see a major shift that Jesus is saying, I'm not just sent to the Jew. I have a love and a compassionate heart for all nations. We see in the end in Revelation that all nations will be gathered around his throne. And he's saying that here through this woman that she is the first person in Mark's gospel that gets a parable. And she, again, after one sentence, answers Jesus from within the same analogy. She gets it. She understands what he's teaching. See the gospel at work in this woman's life. As we begin to apply this text, see the gospel at work. You and I are more wicked than we could have ever believed. Yet at the same time, we are more loved than we could ever imagine. That's what he's teaching. On the one hand, she is not too proud to accept what the gospel says about her unworthiness. Yeah, I, I see the challenge, Jesus. I see that, yes, I was not one who was a, a, a right, I had rights at the table like the children. But she doesn't get uh, offensive. She doesn't take offense and get up and say, how dare you use a racial slur for me? How, how dare you talk about me like that? I'm not going to stand for this. On the other hand, she doesn't insult God by being so discouraged uh, that she doesn't take hold of, of Christ's offer. She responds to him in obedience. And so if you and I are here and we've heard the gospel, if you and I are here Sunday after Sunday and we hear the claims of the Bible that Jesus Christ died in the place of sinful men and women, then there are two ways this morning that we could miss it. A superiority complex, that we're too proud to accept what the Bible says about our condition apart from Christ, that we are rebels, that we deserve hell, that we are sinners that have fallen short of his glory. We could be too proud to receive that, or we could have a, an inferiority complex, so self-absorbed, so consumed with our sin that we say, gosh, I'm so awful, God could, God could never love me. Friends, see the balance in the way that he's having this conversation with this woman. Christ's crumbs, the crumbs of the gospel are worth more than all the world. And she understands that. That even the crumbs from this table, from the Messiah's table, are, are worth more to me. Will you come to him this morning and settle for nothing less than himself? You see, Jesus is testing this mother. Would she hear him calling her a dog, get offended and turn, a right, de turn away, demand her own rights? Give in to this, this idea or this thought that, well, Jesus is just like all those other Jews. The way he uses these, these racial terms, the, the way he's talking about me, he's just like all of those others. Or would she believe, acknowledge her unworthiness and cling to his infinite mercy? We see her faith. Well, that's the first biography in this set of Gentile biographies in our text this morning. I think it's a call for us to see our unworthiness, see that we had no place at the table and he made us sons and daughters. But there's a second individual we meet this morning in the text. You notice him, that's our second point. A Gentile man gets a divine poke in the ear. A Gentile man gets a divine poke in the ear. Look at verses 31 through 37 where we see his story. And again, thinking this morning about how we approach Christ. How do we approach uh, the, the divine? How do we approach God himself, the one who created all things? We just read about a woman who went to Jesus boldly uh, under her own initiative. She was desperate. Her daughter's life was at risk. Uh, she knew he was her only hope. 
Yet, some of us, like the man that we're about to read about, some of us, in our approach to Jesus, take a completely different route. And you may be here this morning, and you were in that boat. You thought it maybe was completely by coincidence. You know, this strange occasion, it was almost accidental that you uh, heard the gospel or you were confronted with the gospel. Friends, that's absolutely not the case. If you're here this morning and you're hearing the word of God, it's not by accident or chance. It's not coincidence. And we see this in this man's story. As soon as Jesus leaves this Gentile location of Tyre, uh, Mark records the, this, this next story. Again, still in a Gentile region. I think he's grouping those stories together intentionally. Look at verses 31 through 32. And then returning to the region of Tyre, he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. Jesus leaves this area of Tyre. He goes north through Sidon, and then he goes to the Sea of Galilee to the area known as the Decapolis or the Ten Cities. And this is a strange journey. It wouldn't have made sense. If you were following Jesus and you knew anything about the geography in that day, you would have thought, Jesus, where are we going? Uh, my daddy used to say, going around by Laura's house. You're, you're getting there, but you're going the wrong way. You're going the long way, right? And, uh, and this is what Jesus is doing. He's actually making a 120-mile horseshoe back to the, the region where he ends up. And I think what we see here is that Jesus had all intentions. His purpose in taking this route was the one to meet this man that we're about to read about, which is incredible that the love of Christ would cause him to take a 120-mile journey out of his way to meet the one. And then you think about that and you think about the fact that he left paradise. He left heaven. The perfections of glory he left to, to put on flesh and be born among us and to die for us. What incredible love we see in Christ. But look at this man and his story, the way that he meets Jesus, the way that he's approached by Christ. Jesus first identifies with his physical condition. Look at verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. This is strange. Uh, if you didn't catch that, this is not common. Uh, there's this whole string of events that take place between Jesus and this uh, deaf and mute gentleman. Uh, you see even more details in Matthew's gospel. If you go to Matthew's account, his, his record of this story, you see even more details. But he basically takes him away from the crowd. He, he, puts, or he points to his own ears. This is Jesus. Points to his own ears. Then he puts his fingers in the man's ears. And the text actually says in the Greek, he, he thrusts them into his ears. And then he touches his own tongue and spits and takes the saliva and touches the man's tongue. And then I know some of you moms are sitting here this morning like, oh, my goodness, why is Matt reading this? It's flu season. My kid's going to be acting like Jesus in the nursery in a minute. And uh, this is like the one time when we shouldn't be asking, what would Jesus do, right? <laughs> it's flu season. He shouldn't be touching people's tongues with your saliva. Jesus looks up and he sighs and he moans. And then he says, be opened. You may read this and think, why is Jesus doing all this? Or you may read it and think, well, he's just performing the rituals of a miracle worker. He's just doing all the things that a miracle worker would do. No, that's absolutely not the case. Remember what we've seen from Jesus so far in the, in the book of Mark. Every miracle that we've seen Jesus perform, whether it's calming the storm or whether it's raising the dead, he's doing it simply by speaking. He's not, he's not waving his arms. He's not, he's not doing some hocus-pocus Harry Potter routine. He's not like doing these magical incantations and nonsense. Jesus just simply has authority and he speaks or he touches and things respond. 
So why is he doing this here? Well, it's obviously not the theatrics or the performance that Jesus needs in his miracles. He's, he's not doing this because he needs to do it. He's doing this because he knows the man needs him to do it. He's doing this on behalf of this man, this man's condition. So go back with me. Think, think what we've seen. Again, even this morning in the text, Jesus' response to this woman that approaches him is quite different, right? He uses a metaphor. He uses a, a parable or a riddle that he uses to test her faith, to challenge her where she's at in her thinking and in her faith. If you go further back, not necessarily in Mark and in our text, but in your memory, go back to John chapter 11. Jesus' friend Lazarus has just died. Jesus is, 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 is sad over this, and he, he approaches this family, and Martha, a sister of Lazarus, runs up to him and says, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes her. He's firm with her and rebukes her. And then, moments later, Mary, another sister of Lazarus, runs up and says, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And what does Jesus do? He simply stops and weeps with her. This is, this is, this is strange, right? I mean, I mean, the, the words, the, 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 the accusation from both of these women, Mary and Martha, are the same, almost exact same sentences. Our brother wouldn't have died if you had been here. And yet, in each context, he does something completely different. In one, he rebukes, and in the other, he weeps with. Why is that? Because, friends, Jesus knows exactly what you and I need. He knows every one of us. He knows our hearts, and he knows what we need. So in our text today, think about this. We've seen this this morning in the response to this woman and the response to this man. Think about what he does with this gentleman. He takes him away from the crowd. Why would Jesus take this guy and come to him and say, hey, come over here with me privately? Why would Jesus do this? I mean, think about it. Wouldn't he want to display his power and authority? Wouldn't he want to do this before the masses so that they can see his authority and his power to heal the deaf and the mute? Well, imagine the way that this guy grew up, having this speech impediment. Having this deafness, he, he was probably made fun of all the time. He was the laughing stock of his, of his elementary school. And, and because he was deaf, everybody thought that it was okay. He was free reign to pick on because he can't hear you anyways, right? He'd probably been ridiculed his entire life. And Jesus takes him away from the crowd as if to say to him, that, not today. Not today, friend. Today is different. You won't be the laughing stock of the crowd today. You won't be a spectacle to be made fun of today. Jesus is identifying with this man emotionally. And then you go further and you see all these really strange things that he does. All this, all this touching of his mouth and this the touching of his ears, putting his fingers in his ears and the saliva. And what is all this? What's he doing this for? It's sign language. He's communicating to this man with a physical condition in the only way that this man can understand. He's speaking to him. He's telling him, I'm about, to, I'm about to heal your tongue. I'm about to heal your ears. I'm about to restore and recreate these things that you had lost. These things that you thought you would never be able to do. I'm about to give that to you. He's speaking to him in, in sign language so that he can relate to him. To, I, can, I, I can identify with you in your physical condition, Jesus is saying. But there's something deeper going on here. There's something more incredible going on here. And we see this in the next action from Jesus. Look at verse 34. And Jesus identifies with the man not only emotionally, not only physically in his condition, but spiritually. Look at verse 34. It says this. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. That's Jesus. The ESV says that Jesus breathed a deep sigh. A better translation, I think, would be that Jesus moaned. You see, to moan is to express pain or, or agony or distress. 
Why would Jesus be expressing pain here or agony? Well, it's possibly because, as we've seen, he's identified emotionally with this man. He has empathy towards his situation, and he's identifying with him. He's identifying with his need, and so he's moaning in pain that this man is in this condition. But that doesn't really make sense because we know that Jesus is about to uh, heal him, and this condition that he's had is, no, is going to be no longer. And so there's, there's no need to be emotional over this because he's about to be made new and restored. It's all going to be in the past in a few moments. There's a deeper identification taking place here. You see, Jesus knows in this moment with this gentleman as they're having this exchange that there is a cost, a deep, deep cost for Jesus' ability to heal this man physically and spiritually. There's a cost for Jesus' healing. And Mark tips us off to that with some specific words. And you keep your Bibles open. Mark uses some very specific words here where Mark is showing us that there's something deeper. There's a deeper identification that's taking place. The text tells us that this man was deaf and could hardly hear. Or in maybe some of your translations, deaf and with a speech impediment. What you may not know is that this word is actually a really, really rare word. And in the Greek, it's a single word. It's only one word that he's using here, and it's moglilalos. And ask Chuck Quarles, and I'm probably saying that really wrong, but it's, it's one Greek word, molilalos, and it's used in only one place in the entire Bible. That's how rare this word is. Mark uses it, and then it's only found in one other place, Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 and verse 5. And it's such a rare word that Mark would have no reason to use this word unless he's wanting to make a point. He would not use this word unless he's cross-referencing, unless he's pushing us back to Isaiah 35. Well, then the question for us then is, what does Isaiah 35 say? Why would Mark use such, this, such a rare word to point us back to the Old Testament? Well, the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus was ever even born, said something about the Messiah. I'll read it to you. If you're there, you can read it along with me. Isaiah 35, verse 5. Be strong and do not fear. Your God will come with divine retribution and save you. And then he says this, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Mark is saying in this moment, in his gospel, don't you see it, readers? Don't you see it, friends? The blind are opening their eyes. The deaf are hearing. The mute tongue is shouting. And just as God told us in the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years ago, God has come. Just like Isaiah 35 said, God has come to save you. That God is Jesus Christ, and he is king. So he's identifying there, but that still leaves us asking, why then this sigh? Why then this moan, this expression of pain? Before leaving verse 35, there's something else we need to see concerning Christ. I just read it, but you may have missed it because we were looking for the mute statement, right? Look at verse 35, verse 5 again. Chapter 35, verse 5 again. Be strong and do not fear. Your God will come with divine retribution. What are you talking about, Mark? What are you, what are you getting to? Jesus is not slaying people. God, if God has come and Jesus is him, he's not slaying people. There seems to be no divine retribution. He's, he's not got a sword out slashing people with divine retribution. Uh, he's, he's not demanding or taking power by force. Instead, he's giving away power and grace. He, he's, he's not taking over the world in retribution. In fact, he's serving the world with incredible mercy. So what are you talking about, Mark? Where's the divine retribution that Isaiah was talking about that you seem to be referencing? Here it is. 
this sigh of, of pain, of agony, this moan in Mark chapter 7 is Jesus identifying for us our spiritual need and saying that, on, uh, that, that in, in Christ he's not bringing at this moment divine retribution, but he was here bearing divine retribution. The prophet Isaiah said that there would be divine retribution, and yes, it was placed on Christ's head. That's this sigh. That's this heaviness. That's this weightiness. That as this man is standing before Jesus, and Jesus looks into his eyes and knows that he needs healing for his tongue and for his ears, that his greatest need, his greatest healing is his heart forgiven, and he knows what that's going to require, the divine retribution that he himself will bear. You see, Jesus identified with this man emotionally by bringing him away from the crowd. He identified with him physically by, by doing all these sign language things to communicate with him on a level that he could understand. But on the cross, Jesus would identify with him and with us totally and fully in the deepest way possible by taking our sin. That's the deepest identification that Christ brings. And that's what he's showing us. And so, so Keller, again, is, is incredible here when he says this, on the cross... The Son of God, God's child, was thrown away, cast away from the table without a crumb so that those of us who are not children could become adopted and brought in children of God. To put it another way, the child had to become a dog so that we could become sons and daughters at the table. That's the weightiness that Christ was feeling as he looked into this man's eyes. He became mute in death. Christ became mute in death so that we could have our tongues loose to call him Savior. That's the good news of the gospel. Friends, see the way that he identifies with us. And as we continue, verse 34, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Can you imagine this scene? As he's standing there, one moment he's deaf, he's mute, he can't speak, he can't hear. And the very next moment, the first things that he hears, the first words that this man hears is be opened as the Savior is talking to his ears. Be opened. He's commanding the ears to hear. And it says that they were astonished and began to spread his fame, saying he's done all things well. This is pointing us back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. If you remember after creation, it said that, that he created and it was good. That God saw it and declared that it was good. Here, the same thing is being said of Christ. He's created uh, not only the world, but now he's recreated this man's ability to hear. He's recreated the, the eardrums that process sound. All of that Jesus has done, and the people said it was good. You hear echoes of creation here. And so how do we apply this text? What do we do with these two stories, these two Gentile biographies, so that it's not just something that happened in history, a lesson that we can learn intellectually. What do we do with this text? Well, first, friends, if you've never approached Christ, if you've never come to Jesus on his terms and surrendered your life to him, don't be so isolated to think that you're beyond healing. Don't, don't, don't be too proud to accept what the gospel says about your brokenness. Don't be too proud and, and, and full of pride that when you hear that you're a rebel and a sinner and you deserve hell, that that hardens you. Don't be so downcast that you won't accept what the gospel says about Christ's love toward you. See how he's identified with you, uh, not only physically by taking on a body, taking on flesh, but he's identified by taking our sin. Give your life to him today. But what about those of us that are followers of Christ? How do we apply this text? What do we do with these words today? Well, friends, first, worship him. 
all of the Bible is pointing to Jesus. All of it should be fuel for our worship for him. And especially in Mark, where Mark is demonstrating to us that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the application every week. Worship this Savior. But friends, especially today, see that this one, the king, came from heaven, humbled himself, and became a dog, a rejected one, so that we could become children, heirs of the king. Friends, if we can't worship over that, then I don't know what's wrong. And then also see Jesus' example in these verses, in these two stories. See his example and let them teach us about our response to the world. So first, uh, see his example in that no one, no one, even Gentiles, even the enemies of the Jew, uh, no one is excluded from God's mission. That we are to go to those that are not like us, the ones across the street that have a different skin color from us, and those around the world that worship other gods and are completely different in their culture from us. No one is excluded from the love of God. He has sent us to the nations because he desires a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. We see that in Christ's example. Also use discernment. Sometimes Jesus was tough. He used parables and riddles and challenges uh, so as to test someone, to see what they believed. And then at other times, he was uh, incredibly gentle. He humbled himself and stooped to serve in the most incredible way. You see the discernment he uses. Every person that you come into contact with will not need the same type of love and, 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 and word and message from you. Some people need gentleness. Some people need to be told the truth. With, with, with firmness, use that discernment. The Spirit of God has been placed in your heart. Serve as Christ did. Have compassion on those that are in need. We see in this in Christ week after week that he looks on this guy who's been made fun of his entire life as a, as a deaf and mute guy. He has compassion on him. He loves him so much so that he would take him away from the crowds and spend this private time with him one-on-one -on -one so as to demonstrate his empathy and his compassion towards him. We're called to live like that as well. And then see the price of redemption. That in Christ's example here in the text, the price of redemption loomed large in everything Jesus did. We see this in this moan, this sigh, that even in this moment he was thinking about the cost, the penalty for his ability to save this man and heal him. It characterized everything Jesus did. And so for us tomorrow, whether we're sitting in school uh, writing at our desk or whether we're sitting in front of our, our desk at work typing something or whether we're on the farm working, anything that we do should be under and through the lens of Christ's great sacrifice. Tomorrow, in the mundane things of a Monday, will you worship Jesus for the sacrifice, for the, the, the death that he paid uh, that you owed? It characterized everything Jesus did. We see this in his ministry from the time that he goes into the wilderness to the time that he's hanging on the cross. Everything was gospel. Everything was purpose and mission for which he came. I pray it will characterize Poplar Spring as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in your word we see a Savior who is loving and merciful and gracious to us beyond all comprehension. That when divine retribution was certain, it was not that he would come and slay us, but that he would be slayed for us, that he would take divine retribution. Jesus, we worship, we praise you for that. Help us to not be so proud and calloused that we think that we're deserving or that we have rights. Help us to not be so broken and downtrodden that we don't see your love for us but help us to respond in faith as we've seen examples this morning in the text. 
Father, we give you this time and pray that you would use this response time, that we would do business with you, that you would do heart work in us. You'd help us to see our sin and need for a Savior. Help us to worship you in obedience this week. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand, church family, and respond as we sing. Let's reflect on the word. Let the Lord do a work in our hearts. If you're here this morning and you've not trusted Christ, you've never come to him on his terms, I'll be available right now or after the service. I would love to talk to you more about what that means to see you step out in faith and trust Christ today. Let's respond in singing.